Hey everybody, I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Rebecca Brooks, founder and CEO of Alter Agents. Founded in 2010, Alter Agents is based in Los Angeles, California, and is a full-service strategic market research consultancy, reimagining research in an era of shifting decision-making. Prior to founding Alter Agents, Rebecca has held senior roles at top market research agencies, including Holland Partners, Dialogue, and Diagnostic Research. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jamin. Happy to be here. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats, full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three course certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. I guess I should say welcome back to the show. You were on uh, uh, pre-COVID. Uh, was it pre-COVID? No, it was it was early COVID. Oh, early COVID. That's right. Yeah, it was like towards the end of, or, or maybe the fall of 2020. It was a dark time. Um, yes. we had, I think Trump hadn't conceded the election. There were just a <laughs> lot of things going on. Like, uh, so I think Oh my gosh, about, you're right. I can't yeah. wait. Oh, you know what I'm going to do after this is go back and, and no. re-listen to that conversation. <laughs> That's, that was an interesting point in our, in our history. Yeah. Well, I, I actually got scolded by my colleague who works with me on this about like, maybe you should try to be in a better mood when you get on this podcast because <laughs> I was feeling pretty, uh, pretty bleak the last time we talked. So things are more optimistic. Today. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, that's helped because your business has been doing so well over, through uh, the wow, pandemic. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've been very lucky. All right. Well, really, the core topic of today is you are releasing a book, which I am very excited about. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say, and if, if not, then I will strike this from our conversation. <laughs> but you did allow me an early access sneak peek into the yes. um, some of the chapters, and I did read it and found it very interesting. But your release date is April of 2022. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Towards the end of the month, the 26th, I believe. Um, there are yeah. there are a lot of books <laughs> that, have, that have been coming out in 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 market research. I'm super curious, or maybe I should say that I, I can kind of answer the question myself, having having read it. But why does the world need another book? Excellent point, and something that I asked myself at the beginning of this process. But you know, the topics that we are covering in this book are pretty meaty. We're talking about how the way that people shop has changed fundamentally, like at a molecular level, people are going to be different shoppers moving forward. And it's not a trend. It's not a blip. It's not an adjustment. It's a reality that I think brands are, we're trying to wake our clients up to and, and brands are, you know, waking up to. So that's issue number one. And there was a, a history that we needed to go in there about why is it changing and what's happening 
We also talk a lot about the way we think the industry is missing the mark with this concept of brand narcissism that I can go into about how our questions are very inward facing and not really reflective of the shopper's experience. And so I think we're missing a lot of really great information. And both of those things were pretty heavy topics. So we wanted to give them the space to you know really flesh them out. Also, we did 6,000 interviews in the U.S., and all of that data is in the book to support, you know, a lot of the findings that we have and sort of illuminate what we're trying to talk about. And, you know, that needed space as well. So it's a topic, you know, I've been talking about since 2015, but I really felt like I wanted to get it out there on a bigger platform, on a bigger stage. And then it was very helpful that somebody actually asked my partner, Deborah Rogers, and I to write the book. So that fell into our laps and we took advantage of it. So we as shoppers have changed at a molecular level. That's, or at least our buying journey has changed at a molecular level. Molecular level yeah. is crazy, but it, it really is. How, what are you seeing? And I, obviously we're still going to buy the book, but what are you <laughs> seeing as the big disruption there? The big disruption is what we've termed shopper promiscuity. And just to clarify that terminology a little bit, we don't mean you know promiscuity in a loose morals kind of sense. We mean it in the sense of being very open to new experiences. And there are several different factors that have led to this, but the end result is that whenever somebody goes in to buy in a category, of course, there are still going to be things we buy automatically when you're running into the gas station for snacks or you know you need to just replace something you have in your home. There are still those purchases going on, of course, but If there is any consideration to be had, more often than not now, shoppers are starting from a clean slate. Um, And that's because we have presented them with a lot of options, right? Everything is at their fingertips. They can search online for anything. They can buy anything from anywhere. They can filter and sort by what their needs and priorities are. We've also trained people to get used to the idea of innovation and disruption. So 30 years ago, if I wanted to buy a toaster, I would have gone to Sears, I would have looked at what was on the shelf, I would have bought a toaster from that selection. Maybe next time I would have known like, oh, I had a Black & Decker, I really like that, I'm just going to go back and buy that again. But now people are, you know, the next time you buy a toaster, like, it's been five or six years, I bet there's a lot of innovation in the toaster space, or in the toothbrush space, or in household cleaning, like we're just accustomed to expecting things to have changed. And so we start with a fresh, open mind, we research, and we look. And in many cases, if you think about the way you shop online, by the time you type in the product you want, filter on all of the things that you need, you've already narrowed down your scope before brand has even come into play. So, you know, the way that we've all been brought up as market researchers and marketers is this idea of a purchase funnel. And I I just think that that is collapsing. And that shoppers are now in a state of kind of constant information gathering, and they are willing to change their opinions, they are willing to switch brands, and it's happening at a faster and faster rate. For those of us that were pre-internet, and it grew up pre-internet, we're learning new behaviors. But for, you know, Gen Z and the generations that come after them, this is native to them. This is, you know, just the way it has always been. So this idea of a purchase funnel, which is something that we use as a foundation for a lot of our research methodologies, isn't going to hold true for much longer if it it even is true today. So that's how we think people are fundamentally changing. And when we ask questions like, what brands did you consider? 
when you started making this decision, uh, a lot of people have a hard time answering that or the hypothetical of, you know, what brands do you think you would look at? I, I don't know. It depends, right? So there's a lot of the ways that we talk to our consumers are just not in sync with how they're actually experiencing things in the real world. The whole space has evolved. You know, SEO, of course, playing a, a pivotal role in what product is chosen. Yeah. And I mean, SEO in a broad sense, not just Google, but also Amazon. Like if you're right. mm-hmm. another, I mean, it could be Walmart, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's, it's wherever people are going to discover or actually make the purchase. How is this impacting this change in, in shopper behavior? How is it impacting how brand trackers are constructed? Yeah. So this is, you know, probably the more controversial part of the book, but having been in this industry for 25 years and having worked on a tremendous number of brand trackers across a bunch of industries, I just really started to feel like what we were doing was broken. Every brand tracker I've worked on at some point, you know, the client loses interest because the data is not changing or we're just not getting the insights that we need or, you know, the teams are burnt out from writing the same headlines every month on the, on the reports. Like it just, it felt, first of all, that it wasn't doing what it was intended to do, which was to give brands really robust information to help them understand how their brand is being perceived in the marketplace. And as I started doing a lot of the shopper work, and the shopper work that we were doing is started, you know, in 2010 to support the Google Zero Moment of Truth research that that came out at the time. But if you can remember that far back, a time when Google needed to encourage people to advertise on Google, that search was important. That was what they were trying to prove. So back then, we started actually talking to people who had just made the decision. Rather than talking to people that were intending to buy in the category, we wanted to know what they did. So we talked to these recent purchasers, and that's when the light bulb started to go off for me of, actually, what these recent purchasers are saying in these categories is not matching what my tracking data is saying in those same categories. There's a disconnect here between the reality of what they did and asking an intender a hypothetical. So that got me thinking about the way that we ask our brand trackers. And I would say that the first thing that's broken is the audience that we talk to. Intenders are interesting, but for the data that we need, why did people buy my brand or not buy my brand? I don't think it's the right group of people to talk to. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is what we call this concept of brand narcissism, which is the the fastest way for me to explain it is like, you're out on a date with a needy guy, right? And he's like, how do I compare to your other dates? And you know, do you like me? And what do you think my best assets are, my best features are? That's how we talk to people in these brand trackers, right? Do you know about me? Do you know about my competitors? What do you think about me as a brand? What do you think about my competitors? They're questions that just don't reflect at all the way that the shopper is actually going to be thinking in the moment. So for example, you could have a very well-known brand that has a pretty, you know, solid brand profile. It's been around for a while and people can parrot that back to you. And because you're a well-known brand, you might have high consideration because, oh yeah, I guess I would consider a, a top brand in the category. But when that shopper goes in to actually do that, where do they start? They start with research. And in that research process, there are so many opportunities for completely new brands to them, disruptors in the category, all these other opportunities for people to come in and cannibalize that. So if we're just looking at the hypothetical and we're asking all of these narcissistic questions, 
my hypothesis is that we are not getting to the insights that brands need to actually survive in this new promiscuous shopping environment. It's interesting. You know, it used to be the case that brands were who they said they were, and now, and then it transitioned to brands are who your customers say you are. Mm. It's almost like elevated now to another layer, which is around discoverability, right? Yeah. So it doesn't really matter how many people are saying positive things about you if you're not, you know, on that first in the early part of the discover, if you're not discoverable, then you're just irrelevant. Yeah. You know, we can't lean on nostalgia or history or a strong brand awareness to hold on to that market share for much longer. I mean, we're seeing, you know, boomers phase out of the dominant, you know, wallet share of spenders and millennials and Gen Z coming up. And I think that the change, we <laughs> sort of feel like a canary in a coal mine, like the change is coming and it's going to be dramatic when it really hits. And we're trying to get, you know, people to recognize that they should start making some fundamental changes to the way they think about tracking if they're going to be able to keep up with things in the new, in this new kind of reality where you've got digitally native people who don't have the kind of loyalty to brands that older generations do and who are trained, we've trained them to need to do research before they buy in the category. Let me give you one data point from our, our study that we did. When we looked at, we you know asked a simple question, did you start with a brand in mind when you started this journey? So again, we're talking to people that actually purchased. So did you start with a brand in mind and did you buy that brand? If they started with a brand in mind and they bought that brand, we termed them loyalists, right? I wanted a Diet Coke, I bought a Diet Coke. When we break that out generationally, 56% of boomers started with a brand in mind and bought that brand. That still to me is a fairly low number given how much emphasis we place on loyalty in our in our research and in marketing and branding. When you go when you cut that down it's sort of a stair step. Gen X is lower than that. Uh, millennials are lower than that. But Gen Z takes a precipitous drop and they go down to I don't have the number in front of me, but I think they go down to like 32% started with a brand in mind and bought that brand. And, you know, it's not one of those things where Gen Z is going to, you know, give up their wild ways and go back to behaving like boomers, right? This is a inflection point in history. They're not going to go, we're not going to go back to that level of boomer loyalty um, again. So how are we thinking about, you know, how we're running our brands, but then also how we're capturing insights to make sure we position our clients the best way possible. We have seen, you know, through social media, a material change in, in how brands are discovered and relate to their to their customers. You know, the analogy I continue to use is that TV, right? So mm -hmm. pre TV, there was radio, and that was a source of entertainment, and there was advertisements, etc. But you know, later on, through television, there became a whole new medium by which consumers were able to connect with and hear about hear about brands. We're seeing that in a, in a digital context and. I think the big learning there is like we have the opportunity of getting in front of it as opposed to being in its wake like we were at the television. You know, market research really didn't start in full force until the 60s, yeah. uh, which is, you know, obviously well behind the television ev evolution. And now we're stepping into yet another new era of the metaverse. Right. Well, and I would uh, let me pause there because I would actually push that much further. When TV came on board, it absolutely did change the way we interacted with brands, the way we learned about brands. It was a whole new direct pipeline to the customer. But what didn't change were the distribution channels, 
right? So if I wanted to buy something, I still had to go to the same stores. I still had the same brands on the shelf. What's happened with online and why like it's not analogous, unfortunately, is that at the same time, all of our distribution channels changed and our access to brands changed in addition to this new incredibly powerful fire hose of information that you can pass on to your customers. So it's yes, it's a media change, but it's actually quite a big structural change in terms of how we interact with brands, both, you know, in person and online. And, uh, and like you're saying, the metaverse coming up, right? <laughs> Who knows what that's going to be? So yeah, I think the, the reason for promiscuity happening now, and not happening in the 40s and 50s, when TV came on board is because the opportunity of where we buy and what we buy has completely blown up. Yeah, that that's a great point that you're making. And it's not lost on me. You're right. The the whole customer journey, quite literally, <laughs> it was the same from radio to TV, right? Yeah. But like the brand building media change. But now that, you know, I think about like Dollar Shave Club, for example, yes. they completely yeah. bypassed whatever that was like 10 years ago, right? Then, yeah. um, they completely bypassed the whole traditional consumer journey. You know, and that's the other thing. When we talk about innovation, it's not just innovation in products, right? But it's innovation in experiences. You could have never convinced me a year before Uber made it big that I would have ever gotten in a stranger's car. And, you know, now I lift all the time. Same with Airbnb. Like, but we have created these sort of experiences that people are becoming really comfortable with really fast. Right. Um, and I think that that, translates into all other experiences, right? Like I think a great example is the way that many restaurants have moved to digital pay during COVID, right? They didn't want their staff exchanging money or cards with, with the customers. So, you know, now they put a QR code on the receipt or there's some other sort of way that you pay digitally. And for almost everybody I know, that is a positive, right? They see that as a real positive. They don't have to wait on the waitress. You can actually split the check in really interesting ways when you do it that way. It's faster, it's less hassle. And we adapted to that very, very quickly. So I, I think that this idea of training people to research, we've also trained them to get used to some pretty big changes quite quickly. All right, let's pause time for a minute and mm -hmm. then fast forward to five years. So that yeah. would be 2027, okay. <clears throat> what brand is winning in five years? You want a brand name or what kind I do, of brand? Actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, for me, Patagonia is such a gold standard because they have a real good handle on exactly who their audience is and exactly the kind of experience that audience wants. And I think that it's the combination of, you know, brands just can't be lazy, right? You have to have a very clear identity. That identity has to be evident throughout the process, right? So people now understand that you could have a great company and treat your employees like crap and they're not going to buy you. Or you could have a great company, but your supply chain supports, you know, misuse of people in another part of the world and they're not going to buy you. So across all levels, a company like Patagonia, in every single thing that they do, from the products that they use, the materials they source, the way that they treat their staff, it all fits with their brand identity. It, it is all um, very cohesive. And that also means that the customer's experience, whether it's online or you know in a retail store, also fits into that identity. And I think that that's the kind of holistic, like a brand needs to be looking at everything 
really know who they are, know who they're talking to, be comfortable, not appealing to everybody. I think those are the brands that are going to be agile enough and interesting enough and give consumers enough back to stay relevant in the future. That's interesting. Nike is a brand I look at. Yeah. I was super interested. Roblox, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the uh, Metaverse gaming company. I got little kids. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They went public, I think it was Q1 of 2021 Mm. uh, with a market value of $48 billion. So a big, big valuation. And then in November of last year, Nike teamed up with them and created Nike Land. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so- And the interesting thing about Nike Land is it's like this NFT rich framework where you can buy, you know, your NFT and wear your digital shoes, right? Or your 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 on your avatar in Nike Land, but then also it transcends or can transcend if you want to to a physical item as well. Do you think the metaverse is going to in the next 5 years is going to like be not disrupt the in-person experience per se, but is it an augment or maybe it is a disruption? You know, I am so fascinated by this. I got to have a really great long conversation with Lindsay McInerney, who was at Anheuser-Busch and is now the CEO of an entertainment company that's focusing on the metaverse called Sixth Wall. And she is really bullish on this and believes that the things that we own in the metaverse, once it becomes something that is transferable across platforms, right? So my identity, my digital identity on Facebook is the same as my digital identity in Instagram is the same as my digital identity in Roblox. You bring this thing with you to all of these other places, then that starts to create much more of a demand for uniqueness and identity and authenticity and curating the best things. So, you know, from that perspective, I think the technology, the concept of the metaverse is fascinating to me. I think the technology is a few years away from what the actual concept could be. And so I don't know that brands really have a a clear path yet in terms of how impactful that's going to be. But I do know for my kids, because of experiences with Roblox, you know, and other, you know, YouTube and TikTok and all of these other things that they're involved in, like, it is such a natural progression for them to go into a metaverse, right? It just feels like a natural extension of what they're doing. Where for, you know, old phobias like me, I'm just like, what's a metaverse? Like, it just doesn't fit with my view of the world. But for them, it's really just a natural extension of what they're already doing. So I think it's inevitable. And I think that brands should be thinking about you know, again, but it, it still comes back to that authenticity, right? And I think Nike actually building a Nike world is authentic with their brand. You know, do something that really connects people to your brand and enhances that brand experience for them. If they can do that, then I think there will be a, a fairly easy transition into that space. But I don't think that you can stay absent from it. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting statistics I've been paying attention to, Harvard Business Review has a couple of posts on the speed of innovation adoption in U.S. households. And they actually start with like the telephone and they look at electricity Mm -hmm. and refrigeration and clothes washers and dryers and air conditioners and microwaves, the whole thing, right? The internet, cell phones, as you probably already deduced, like there's a truncation that happens in each each step, right? Mm -hmm. So- you know, electricity was faster than adoption was faster than the telephone and refrigeration and electricity and so on and so forth. It, it will be interesting 
to see like how fast the, the technology on the, in the metaverse is is going to be adopted and, and what ultimately you know that means i think in some ways if you're thinking about like augmented reality that becomes you know we're already doing that with google maps right yeah no i know it's a whole thing and i'm often you know you've got young kids too and i often think about kind of what world will they live in and what it's going to be like and i, I just think at this point i've given up trying to speculate i'm like it's going to be very different <laughs> that's all i know and i probably won't understand half of it but yeah change is coming for sure. All right. My last question. What is your personal motto? <laughs> so I struggle with this. You asked me this before, and I think I'm going to go back to what I said then, which is that I don't really have a personal motto, but I have kind of adopted or try to adopt this philosophy that my Angelou shared. I got to see her speak in North Carolina many years ago and somebody asked her, you know, how did you get to be so amazing? <laughs> which is, you know, a pretty great question. And she said, I don't know that I'm amazing, but I do know that I go to bed every night and I think I'm going to do better tomorrow. And I get up in the morning and I make a hundred mistakes and I go to bed that night and I think I'm going to do better tomorrow. And that's really what I'm trying to do is just, I'm trying to be a little bit better, better mom, better, better boss, better, you know, business owner, better everything, make a hundred mistakes, go to bed, say, I'm going to do it better tomorrow. Our guest today has been Rebecca Brooks, founder and CEO of Alter Agents. Rebecca, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Shannon. Everybody else, as always, I hope you found value in the episode. I certainly did. Like, reshare, tweet it, tag me, and I will send you a t-shirt. I still have a few left. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs>